this morning, as we kind of wrap things up, I'm going to talk to you from a text of Scripture that uh, is uh, very, very dear to my heart. In fact, it wasn't too many months ago that I was going through this section of Scripture at Grace Church. And then I I put together a special message for an event uh, back in um, Louisville, Kentucky called Together for the Gospel event, and Austin asked if I would... uh, Go back to this same text and talk to you a little bit this morning. So open your Bible to John 6, John chapter 6. Right behind me is uh, obviously the word steadfast. That's what this whole week has been about. That's the way it started. That's the way it continued, and that really is the way it will end. But as I said uh, yesterday morning when we started, you've heard a lot of positive things about being steadfast and We're going to kind of end up by taking a look at some of the negatives of the issue of steadfastness. And in the text that I want to draw you to, John chapter 6, starting in verse 60, I think this is as sad a portion of Scripture as exists in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. I think it was heartbreaking for Him. Uh, I think it was the ultimate tragedy And you will understand why as we look at it. Let's begin at verse 60, John 6. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can hear it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples complained or grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then this sad note in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want you to look at verse 66. This is really the key to the passage. 
Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. When I was in high school, like you guys, I professed Christ. I desired to serve Christ. I had been in the church all my life up to that time. I never rejected the gospel. I always believed everything that the Scripture said, everything my parents taught me about Scripture and about the gospel. And I assumed that anybody who uh, professed Christ, anybody who said they believed was a true Christian. I had a friend in high school, his name was Ralph. He and I were pretty good buddies. We, we actually played in the same backfield in football. We played basketball together and we he played first base on the baseball team in our high school, and I played shortstop, so we were, we were together a lot, good friends. We used to go down to parts of Los Angeles on uh, weekends to pass out gospel tracts, gospel leaflets, and occasionally witness to people. This is just part of sharing what we believed. I went away to college. Ralph went away to college. Ralph went to the University of Redlands, and it uh, wasn't very long before uh, he declared himself an atheist, who not only didn't believe in Christ, didn't believe in God's existence, didn't believe anything in the Bible, anything that he had affirmed. This was a striking moment in my life. Because I didn't have a category for people like that. I just assumed if you're a Christian, you, you remain a Christian. I couldn't comprehend how someone who knew the, the truth about Christ could turn his back, walk away, deny the whole thing, and declare himself an atheist, and then go live as if there were no God. I went to college, and again... You know, when you're on an athletic team, you get very tightly connected to certain guys, and there was a guy named Don. We were co-captains of the football team. Uh, we ran again in the same backfield. We played defense together. We were close friends. My dad was a pastor. His dad was a pastor. He told me he was headed toward ministry. I was headed toward ministry eventually. I graduated from college. Uh, I went to seminary, and the rest you know. He graduated from college, he went to get a PhD in uh, philosophy and psychology, denied the faith, denied the gospel, denied Christ, was arrested for lewd conduct while teaching a class at Cal State Long Beach, abandoned the faith. I, I was still struggling. What kind of person is this? Who walks away from Christ? Who turns his back on eternal life? Who does that? How does that happen? I went to seminary. I went to Talbot Seminary. I had a good friend there. And again, we were, we were connected through just our love of athletics and, uh, and music, and we got involved in those kinds of things. And his dad was a faculty member. He graduated from seminary and set up a Buddhist altar in his house. Buddhist altar? After all the training and exposure to the truth of Scripture in seminary, you set up a Buddhist altar in your house? Who does that? Is 
Is Christ so unimpressive? Is, is Christ so easily dismissed when he is the only hope of forgiveness of sin, escape from judgment, and everlasting blessing? Who does that? How does that happen? In the process of all this, I, I began to recognize 1 John 2.19, a verse that says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest they never were of us. There are people who profess Christ, lots of them. Please notice, this didn't just happen to me, this happened to Jesus. Many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. That is a very strong statement in the original Greek language. This is their final decision, walking away from Christ. They never were Christ's. They were superficial. They were temporary. They were fake. You remember that Jesus told a story about the soils, and there was that that soil that was rocky, and the plant grew up, and it looked like it had life, but it never bore any fruit, and it died under the sun and withered away. And you, you remember there was that seed that went into the weedy ground, and it looked like it was generating life, but it never had any fruit, and the weeds choked it out. And Jesus said there are some people who uh, come toward Christ, but under pressure, tribulation, um, we're not willing to pay the price, and they wither and die before anything really happens to regenerate them. And there are people who love the world, he said, the cares of this world, the preoccupations with this world, the love of money and things like that choke the seed. I could understand that happening to, to me, friends of mine. I don't have that much influence. I can understand it happening to me, even as a pastor now, look through the years, people have walked in the door of Grace Church, stayed a while, walked out, and denied Christ. One of the most angry, hateful, expletive, loaded letters I've ever received, threatening my life with the most vile attack kind of language against me, crossed my desk and I read through all of this hatred spewed at me. And the letter closed with this line, by the way, you baptized me at Grace Church. The letter was so severe, they upped security to protect me, threatening my life. You baptized me at Grace Church. Steadfast means you don't walk away from Christ. You don't abandon Christ. What fool turns his back on forgiveness, eternal life, and eternal blessing? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. How is that possible? How can you be with him as a student? The word disciple means student, learner. This wouldn't be something that we want to load with too much spiritual reality. That He had lots of students, lots of learners not all of them truly believed in him, as this points out. 
rabbis in ancient times had followers. They had students, and, and they sort of had moving classrooms along the highways and the byways and the countrysides and the groves and wherever. And Jesus had accumulated students that would be called mathetes, learners, disciples. But a vast number of them turned their back and walked away. False disciples who make a deadly, deadly decision. I want to show you how severe this is. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. This is very strong language. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God will be faithful to do what he said he would do. God's faithfulness is never in question. Ours is. So here's the warning. Hold fast the confession of your hope in Christ. Hold on to it. And then down to verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Wow. Hold on to your confession of Christ. Do not go willfully backward into sinning when you have the knowledge of the truth or there is no other sacrifice for you and you are left with eternal hell. The severest punishment for anyone, verse 29, comes to those who trample underfoot the Son of God, which means they know the truth of Christ and they trample it as if it's to be rejected. They regard the, the blood that He shed on the cross to, to ratify the new covenant as something unclean. And they insult the Holy Spirit. If you do that, verse 30 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will repay. God will judge those who walk away from Christ when they have had the full knowledge of Christ. And the worst of eternal judgment, the hottest hell of all, will be that for those who knew the truth of the gospel and walked away from it. So verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, drop down to verse 39, Hebrews 10. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That's as strong as the warning gets in Scripture about not walking away from Christ. We're not just talking about being steadfast as a believer. That has obviously been the theme this week. 
But, but there's another aspect of this, not just being steadfast as a true believer and not being lured back into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and caught back up in the very world that you've overcome. We're talking about whether or not you are a Christian, which will be manifest by whether you remain with Christ. You all know people who've come to your youth group, your church. You have people like this in your family. They're everywhere. They're the tares scattered among the wheat. They're the false believers, the hypocrites that are always around. And time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth comes out. And they shrink back away from Christ, reject the confession that they once made, and they shrink back into destruction with no hope of salvation. We don't want to be like that. We want to be the true disciples who continue with steadfast faith unto the preserving of our souls. Let's go back to John 6. And I just want you to kind of get the picture. This is a big chapter with a lot going on here. But let's try to find out why this happened in verse 66. Why did they walk away? So let's look at the character of false disciples. Okay, how do we how do we do the pathology here? How do we analyze this? How do we put them under the, the microscope and take a look at the, the DNA of a false disciple? First of all, uh, the chapter begins with uh, Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this massive crowd is following him at verse 2 because they saw the signs he was performing on those who were sick. So here's the first indication of a pattern of uh, false discipleship. They are attracted by the, the movement. They're attracted by the crowd. False disciples see something that attracts them. People are lonely. People are distressed. People are disappointed. People are frustrated. Uh, people want a meaningful life. They want meaningful relationships. They want to matter. And, and they see a crowd, and they, they see the energy of the crowd and the enthusiasm of the crowd. And, and Jesus had massive crowds of thousands upon thousands of people surrounding him, sometimes in excess of 20,000 people. In fact, it says in the Gospels, there were so many people, on some occasions they were stepping on each other, like a mosh pit. Massive crowds trying to clamor to get... Jesus. Why? Because he was healing. He was healing everybody of every disease, casting out demons, raising dead people, doing miracles. The very reality of an enthusiastic, excited, uh, expectant, anticipative crowd draws people. There's an attraction. Secondly, the pathology is Another element of that pathology is that they're fascinated by the supernatural. We talk as Christians about the supernatural, about uh, heaven. Uh, people are caught up about, look at this ridiculous movie that's out now, Heaven is for Real, and the whole movie is not for real. It's a lie, and the book was a lie, but it sells in the millions because people want the supernatural. Look at the world in which we live. 
most of the movies now and most of the video games are fantasy world video games. People live in some kind of bizarre world of somebody else's creation that isn't the real world. They're fascinated by the supernatural, even by an aberrant and unreal image of the supernatural. But in in the case of Jesus, he could do miracles. He healed people. He cast out demons. And so they are drawn by his power. And then you you know that what happens here is he feeds these people. He creates food. Creates food. 20 to 25,000 people, he makes food out of nothing. I mean, that, that is massive creative energy. One of the scientists in our church... Uh, uh, did a study on that uh, with E equals MC squared using Einstein's formula to try to figure out how much power it would take to create a half a pound meal for, let's say, 20,000 people. And the answer was this. It would take power equal to all the electrical power on earth operating at 100% output for 4,000 years make that one meal. That's the creator. That's the creator. Simon Magus in the book of Acts wanted to buy the Holy Spirit because he saw the miracles. I want the Holy Spirit. I'll buy the Holy Spirit. And you remember what happened to him. He was cursed. Your money perish with you. But the supernatural draws people today. I mean, what junior hire in my day, would read 650 pages of Harry Potter. Crazy. And you see millions of junior high kids reading 600-page books of the fantasy world. Supernatural is very attractive. Thirdly, false disciples are interested in earthly benefits. After the feeding, the people, verse 14 said, truly, the prophet who is to come into the world, this is he. This is he. Jesus was perceiving, verse 15, that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. We want Jesus for our king. Why? Free food. Creates meals. Heals diseases. It was all about physical benefits. Physical blessings. That's what makes the prosperity gospel so tragic because people are promising well-being, success, money, healing, all kinds of physical benefits that God doesn't promise. But false disciples are drawn by crowds. They are fascinated by the supernatural. They are interested in earthly benefits, a better life, better relationships, more fulfillment, more satisfaction, and that's what drew these people. And they can get pretty demanding, by the way. False disciples begin to to demand that they get what they want. If you go down to verse 28 of John 6, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Which is like saying, give us the power. Give us the power. We want the power. The power for what? The, the power to create food, the power to heal diseases, give us the power. They were like a, they were like a whole mass of Simon Maguses wanting somehow to buy the power. And they have demands. Give us the power. 
Jesus said, this is a work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The only supernatural power you will ever experience is the power to believe. I'm not giving you this power. The only power you will ever experience is the power to believe. So they then said, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? Either give us the power or give us the food. Give us the power, and if you're not going to give us the power, then keep giving us the provision. I mean, when, when preachers and evangelists offer people spiritual power, when they offer them uh, prosperity, money, they tell them this is what God wants to give them, basically they're, they're literally offering people what Satan prompts them to desire. Give us the power. Give us the provision. Further, false disciples have no interest in Christ. They have no interest in Christ. They're interested in uh, what He can give them, but not Him. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. You don't need the power, you need Me. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. They, they had no interest in the one who supplies everything. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. He says it again. I am the bread of life. So we start to see a picture of what a false disciple looks like drawn by the crowd, fascinated by the supernatural, attracted for the sake of earthly benefits, no real interest in Christ. And then there's another really important element. doesn't understand the significance of the cross. Go down to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about his death. I will give my flesh to provide life, spiritual life, to the world. You have to accept the cross. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. What does that mean? Accept His death, accept His sacrifice and His blood shedding on the cross. The one who does, verse 54, eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I'll raise him on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. False disciples have little interest in Christ as the bread. They're looking for what He provides, not Him. They have little interest in His sacrifice on the cross. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe. Well, that gets us basically up to our text in verse 60. Many disciples He's gathered now, many don't have a number. When they heard all of this about his death, his flesh, his blood, him being the bread that came down from heaven, their response is, this is a scleros statement. Who can hear it? Scleros means hard. It literally means stiff. This, this, is, this is too hard, too... too uh, absolute. 
difficult, offensive, hard to believe. What, what, do you, what is hard to believe? That you came down from heaven, the bread that came from heaven, that you are the source of life, that you can alone provide forgiveness through your death. They had no quibble with His works. They didn't reject His works. What they did reject was His words, that He was God, that He had come down from heaven, that He was the source of life, that He was the one who gives eternal life, that He was able to raise the dead. This from a man who looked like every other Jewish man, didn't have a halo, didn't wear some kind of a translucent robe, just a carpenter from Galilee as far as anyone could tell from looking at the outside. This is, this is beyond their ability to, to grasp. They could accept His works, but when He said He was God, He was the source of life, He was the only one who could provide salvation through His death. That was too hard for them to grasp. So what it comes down to, young people, is the words, the words. It comes down to the words. People will accept the, the miraculous Jesus. They will accept the loving Jesus. They will accept the compassionate Jesus, the merciful Jesus. Uh, but they will not accept the Jesus who speaks, who speaks. I wrote a book some years ago called the, the Jesus You Can't Ignore. It was, the book, by the way, was ignored by most people. <laughs> but I wrote the book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore. Everybody accepts the, the Jesus of their own manufacturing, the, the Jesus who is benign and compassionate and cares about poor people and spends time with little children and takes care of suffering widows and uh, Jesus who has uh, a heart of goodness toward people. But they do not accept Jesus' words, His words. And that's the issue here, and it's always the issue. John 8, Jesus said, If you obey my word, then you are my real disciple, my mathetes alethos, my true student, true follower. It comes down to the words. When he went to uh, Nazareth, back to his hometown in Luke 4, and uh, they, they, they were so excited that he came home because he'd been healing people in Capernaum, and Capernaum's just a little ways away from Nazareth, so he comes to his hometown, the word is out, he's healing people all over everywhere, been doing it in Judea, now he's starting to do it in Galilee. They were, they were ecstatic, they put him into the synagogue, put him up on the front and said, you, you, you speak to us and teach us today. They were so enamored with him because of his works. And then he spoke. And when he finished speaking, they tried to throw him off a cliff and stone him to death in his own hometown. And these were the people who knew him. He had grown up in that town, small town, Nazareth, and he had grown up in that synagogue. These were friends and family who knew him well. And after one sermon, they wanted to kill him, and he had to escape for his life. It's always the words that offend Always the words. Always the words. So, verse 
61, Jesus is conscious that they are not handling his words well. They are grumbling. They are offended. His words are killing the attraction. Does this cause you to stumble? And then he makes a plea. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you're just patient, if you're just patient and stay here, and not for very long, just stay with me for a few months, and you will know that I came from heaven. How will you know? Because you'll see me go back. Acts chapter 1. They took him out to the Mount of Olives, and in front of his disciples, he ascended into heaven. He just went up. And two angels came down and said, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. He's saying, stay with me. Stay with me. I will prove I came from heaven. You will see me go back. A plea. And then he reminds him in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Don't reject my words. Stay with me and I will prove they are true. A plea for a few more months. A plea for a few more words. Listen, believe, hear. Believe the words. Sadly, he says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then John writes, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew Judas was a betrayer from the beginning. He knew who didn't believe. Boy, that makes it even harder. You know, when we try to evangelize people, at least we have hope. At least we have hope. We may question whether someone's going to believe, but we don't know. How hard was it for Jesus to be warning people, calling people, asking them to believe, to hear His words, to be faithful, to remain, and knowing exactly those people who did not believe, would not believe, and would walk away. It's a sad reality that our Savior endured to be rejected by those to whom he had given himself so intimately that they could be called his own personal disciples. As a result, we're now down to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So do you understand a little of the pathology of false disciples? Drawn by the crowd, fascinated by the supernatural, uh, looking for benefits in life, a better life, uh, more satisfaction, more fulfillment here and there, no real interest in Christ, no real interest in His atoning work on the cross, um, with lots of demands, and they want their demands met, and they want Jesus to deliver, and if you don't deliver, you know, I'm out of here. Give us either the provisions constantly, what we want, or give us the power to produce it ourselves. And if you're not going to do that, and he didn't, he didn't give him another meal, he didn't create another meal. Later, in, uh, down in Decapolis, he did a similar feeding, but not in Galilee. If you're not going to give us the provision on a regular basis, if you're not going to give us what we want, then give us the power. He says, you're not getting either. 
The only supernatural power you'll ever experience is faith, and that's it. No wonder they walked away, because in the end, their interest wasn't in Christ. A few years ago, when we were in New Mexico, I, I gave a message to you comparing Judas to Peter, and we talked about the difference between those two men, both of whom followed Christ for the same amount of time, saw the same experiences exactly, and in the end, the difference was Peter loved Christ and hated the world. Judas loved the world, tried to get as much money as he could out of his wasted time, and hated Jesus. In the end, everything comes down to your attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ and your attitude toward the world, which do you love? If the love of the Father is in you, then you do not love the world, as we saw. If you were to make a sort of a paraphrase of verse 66, it would read like this. Many of His disciples left for good, gone, done, over with, shrinking back into eternal destruction and the vengeance of God forever. But let's turn the page, and let's close by thinking about true discipleship. What does it mean to be steadfast? Pretty simple. So Jesus, verse 67, said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? In the Greek questions, Greek interrogatives have different construction leading you to the conclusion that is anticipated. This one expects a no answer. So it could be read this way. Surely you don't want to go away also, do you? You don't want to leave me, do you? And that's the question for you, young people. There are defectors constant. Mass defection. There was around Jesus this day. By the time you come to the end of the New Testament, there are 500 believers in Galilee after all his ministry there, and there are 120 in Jerusalem, and some of them may have been made up of Galileans who had come down for Pentecost. If you added all of them up, you, you would have maybe 600 and some believers after three years of God revealing himself in Israel. They walked away. This is the common response. But Jesus says, you don't want to do that, do you? And Simon Peter, speaking for everyone, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It always comes to the words. False disciples are chasing Jesus for the works, for the supernatural experiences, for the divine help. You hear people talk like that. Oh, I, I pray. I, I, I ask God. Um, when I get in trouble, I, I, I cry to God and ask Him to help me. The world is full of people who, who talk to Jesus, quote-unquote, because they want something. They want the power. They want the supernatural intervention. True disciples want the words. They want the words. It's just to say they love His words 
which is to say they love Scripture. In the end, then, it is your attitude towards Scripture that demonstrates your spiritual condition. If you keep my commandments, John 8, 31, you are my real disciple. If you keep my commandments, you are my real disciple. Peter says, we, verse 69, have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Messiah and the Savior. False disciples, crowd, possibilities of the supernatural, earthly benefits, success, divine help, getting your needs met, getting what you want. True believers, the Word, the truth, Scripture. We are people of the book, people of the book. The Christian church today is packed with false believers, just packed, who have been attracted on a sentimental level, attracted on a temporal level, attracted by the prosperity preaching, attracted on the promise of miracles or money. The true believers whether they're poor, rich, well, sick, love the truth. What defines a real believer, a steadfast believer, is that believer loves the Word of God. You could say with David in Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. If you want a good exercise to kind of reveal your spiritual condition, read Psalm 119. Read Psalm 119, 176 verses, longest chapter in the Bible, obviously, and read what David thought about the Word of God. Every verse, every single verse is David's heart cry toward the Word of God, how he feels about Scripture. He calls it law, precepts, statutes, lots of names for it, but he loves it. He obeys it. He delights in it. He lives by it. And as we said yesterday, he hates anything that is contrary to it. We, he says, Peter does, have believed. We believed your words, and we know you're the Holy One of God. Let me say it again. If you want to do a reality check and examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, Check your attitude toward Scripture. Do you love it, even though you fall short? And after 175 verses of extolling Scripture, the last verse of Psalm 119, David says, I go astray. Even in spite of his love for Scripture, he knew there was still sin in his life. Paul says the same thing in Romans 7. Oh, I love your law. It is holy, righteous, and good but I don't do what I ought to do, and I do what I ought not to do, and I know there's a wretchedness in me. We understand that. In the end, it's your attitude toward Scripture that matters, toward the words of the Savior. Verse 70 then, Jesus answered him, did I myself not choose you, 
the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Simon Peter, a believer, Judas, a devil. Judas, the one who was a devil, diabolos, slanderer, rebel, was with Peter every day for three years and with the rest. The rest, the other 11, believed and Judas did not believe. Why was Judas there? He was drawn by the crowd. He was seduced by the supernatural. He saw this as a ticket to getting what he wanted in life. He had really no interest in the person of Christ, did not believe he was the Holy One of God in spite of the miracles. And he had no interest at all in the death of Christ, the atonement that Christ was going to provide, because as soon as he realized Jesus started talking about death, he got out as fast as he could, betrayed him to get some money before the whole thing collapsed. He's the prototype of a false disciple. Steadfastness starts with a steadfast faith. Do not walk away from Christ. That is a Judas act. And the severest punishment in eternity in hell will be for those who walk away from Christ having known the truth. It would be better if you never knew the truth and you only suffered eternally for your sins, not for having also rejected Christ. Be steadfast. Be steadfast in your faith. Pray to God to strengthen your faith. A benediction, and I'll close. Ephesians 6.24 says this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, with an incorruptible love. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love, a love that cannot be corrupted, diminished, a love that is steadfast and enduring. Our Lord, we thank you so much for calling us together this week. Thank you so much for the, the positive truth that's been placed in our hearts and minds. Thank you for the influence of leaders and friends and rich discussion all around that most pure, powerful, necessary reality, your word, Scripture, the Bible. We know that if we are true disciples, it will show up in our affection for your word. Even though we fail, even though we do what we don't want to do and don't do what we want to do, even though we struggle, as David did, and go astray, even though we're drawn back to, to the world as it tempts us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, even though we battle all of that, we love your law. We love your word. And your word reveals the Holy One of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I pray there won't be a, a young person here whoever will walk away and walk no more with Christ. Keep them, guard them, protect them, and grant true faith. And we know that the final word from this passage is a wonderfully hopeful word. It's the word that tells us heaven is involved in this because our Lord said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And he also said, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Oh, Father, grant that all here may come to your Son. Give them true, saving, steadfast, enduring faith and love toward him. We pray in his name.